This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Now, as you could probably tell, this is not the tightrope. I'm not Professor Trisha Rose or Dr. Cornell West. My name is Sam Fragoso. I host a show called Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso. The reason I'm here today is because in the fall of 2020, about a month before the election, I sat down with Dr. West for an interview. As you could probably imagine, Dr. West has done many, many interviews over the years, but this one's a little bit different, more candid and open and vulnerable than you probably ever heard from him before. In fact, when we finished taping, Dr. West, who, by the way, I had never met prior to this conversation, he said this was one of the best interviews he'd ever done in his life. It was also one of my favorite conversations that I've ever had on Talk Easy. In the last seven years since we started this show, I've had on Representative Ilhan Omar, Claudia Rankin, Beto O'Rourke, Matthew McConaughey, Kate Blanchett, Run the Jewels, Brittany Packnett Cunningham, but this episode with Dr. West It's one I'll never forget. And it's my hope, after you take a listen today, that you'll feel the same. So thank you for being here. I hope you enjoy it. And without further ado, here is Dr. Cornell West. Dr. West, thank you very much for being here. I did, brother. It is truly an honor to sit with you, especially in this precarious time of ours. And it's in this time that I wanted to start with. When you rise in the morning, as you go through your days, what are you seeing in this country right now? Well, I'm seeing a lot of resilience and resistance. I'm seeing a lot of decay and decline simultaneously. It's very clear that we're living in an empire that is imploding, that's unable to respond to the variety of catastrophes, the ecological catastrophe that's hunting us down and haunting us down every day, the possible nuclear catastrophe, the economic catastrophe of poverty and wage stagnation and wealth inequality, political catastrophe of just the most uh, corrupt leadership, often house Senate, as well as especially in the White House Supreme Court, the civic and the social catastrophe of shattered relationships, shattered friendships, shattered families and communities. And then there's a spiritual catastrophe, which is just a country where um, greed is good and might makes right becomes so dominant that those who are critical of it feel as if You can't find a way out other than hit the streets and go to jail because the system is so hemorrhaged. We wonder whether the system can reform or be reformed. And yet people are fighting. It's a beautiful thing to see. And you, in fact, are still fighting. Well, you you fighting too, Brother Stan. You fighting. Well, I'm honored to be fighting with you. And as I'm looking at you right now, over Zoom, of course, I can see you're wearing that black suit of yours. And in wearing that suit, I know you are paying homage to Masha, the heroine of your favorite play, Chekhov's Three Sisters. For context, 
In the story, she always wears black. Her father has just died. She's stuck in a pointless marriage with a boring man. You've said the heart of this play is around this central question. How do you make disappointment a constant companion and still persevere? That question, of course, feels especially timely in 2020, a year full of disappointment. Have you answered that question for yourself in this moment? We certainly live in the age of Chekhov since he is the great poet of catastrophe, but also the great poet of resilience, of perseverance, of stamina, of keep going on, I can't go on, I will go on. That's Chekhov alongside Samuel Beckett. I don't think there's an answer to the question in terms of what it means to make disappointment your constant companion. Uh, I think there's a response it's like the conclusion of a practical Aristotelian syllogism, which is not a proposition or a theory, but it's a life lived. It's the response that we make embodied and enacted in our deeds, our practice, our ways of life. And it's very, very Chekhov-like. He used to say philosophers are like the great generals. They all want us to enlist in their army. I refuse to enlist, and I'm with Chekhov in that regard. Similarly so with theology. Now, we know Chekhov, of course, was not a Christian like myself, but he was so deeply shaped by the best of Christianity, which was the very core of the best of Orthodox Russian Christianity. Absolute condemnation of no one, embrace of everyone across the board. And in that sense, he accepted Christian compassion while he rejected the Christian consolation. He accepted Christian love. He rejected the Christian conclusions about resurrection and deliverance and salvation and so on. Mm. You know, the age of Chekhov is one in which through our artistic expressions, through our acts of kindness and solidarity, we can express a freedom and a love and a democracy that is not realizable at the present, given the structures of domination in place. Absolute condemnation of no one. That has been tested over the last four years under this administration. How have you avoided absolute condemnation of this man? Well, we tell the truth of him being a neo-fascist gangster. We tell the truth of him being pathological liar, xenophobe, racist, and a whole host of other things. But you'll acknowledge his humanity. You acknowledge that he's on a continuum with you. You acknowledge that he's not the cause of those things in the American empire. He is the expression, the symptom, the symbol, the crystallization of those things. And therefore, Chekhov did have a certain kind of charitable Christian hatred, in which you hate to sin and still try to stay in contact with the humanity of the sinner. It's like staying in contact with the humanity of Natasha in the, in the cherry orchard, even though you know she's gangster-like, even though you know she's taking over, even though you know she's not just territorial, but she's uh, colonizing in that way. Chekhov has a certain uh, patience and even compassion for all of his characters. There's over 8,000 characters in Chekhov's corpus. Uh, he's not uh, engaging in the kind of easy, absolute condemnation of them. He's condemning what they do, how they think, their ways of being in the world, but he knows that as human beings, 
he's still connected with them. And there's something inside of them that is inside of us and inside of him. And yet we, given different degrees and gradations, conquer that worse side of us better than others. So that you, for example, you conquer whatever gangsters inside of you much better than Trump. I've tried to conquer the gangster inside of me much better than Trump, but it's not as if there's not a certain kind of civil war taking place on the battlefield of my own soul that's similar to the civil war taking place with his. It's just that in his, the Confederacy wins daily, weekly, monthly, yearly, every decade. But I do believe human beings have the capacity to change, even if they manifest no proclivity toward changing at all. They still have the potential to change and be transformed. You've often described your child self as a gangster. Absolutely. (laughs) And you had this kind of fighting, irrepressible spirit growing up in the 50s and 60s in Clan Elder, Sacramento. That's right. Your father would tell you, you can't fight other people's battles. Your mother said of you at school that you would take things from somebody who you thought had too much and give it to somebody who didn't have as much. How do you think those childhood experiences, that childhood mentality, has shaped your views on equity and fairness as an adult? Mm, I appreciate that question, brother. No, it's still very much inside of me, both the gangster on the one hand and the Robin Hood-like sensibility on the other, that I try to hold on to a unbreakable and undeniable solidarity with the vulnerable. It partly comes out of the genius of Hebrew scripture, where you spread hesed, the steadfast love, the loving kindness to the weak, the vulnerable, the orphan, the widow, the fatherless, the motherless. It has something to do with with, with Jesus as well. I have come to set at liberty those who are oppressed. What you do to the least of these, the prisoners and the the, the elderly and the children and and the poor, you do unto me. I run out the money changers out of the temple. What does that temple look like in 2020? White House, Pentagon, Wall Street, Hollywood, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Silicon Valley, all of the elites at the highest level who are often too disproportionately driven by greed and status. Doesn't mean that the individuals who inhabit those spaces are in any way beyond change, but the dominant culture of those places generate the kind of righteous indignation that led a Palestinian Jew named Jesus to run those money changes out. And then, of course, it led directly to to his crucifixion. Now, none of us are Jesus. None of us should have any messianic aspirations or any kind of uh, salvific uh, sensible uh, powers. But we're, we're followers, we're disciples. We take seriously the plight of the vincible. And in the end, of course, we're all vulnerable, but especially the poor, especially the hated, especially the rebuked and the scorned. It could be Dalits in India. It could be the Roma in Europe. It could be landless peasants in Brazil. It could be Jews in Russia or France or Pittsburgh. It could be Palestinians under Israeli occupation. It could be those brothers and sisters in Tibet and Kashmir under occupation. It could be indigenous peoples in the United States, black folk in the hoods, brown folk 
in barrios, white brothers and sisters locked into uh, impoverished conditions in Appalachia and other places. These are human beings at the deepest level who are calling for help. And it seems to me that uh, it's a beautiful thing to find joy in fighting with oppressed people who are aspiring to lives of decency and dignity. And so going back to my years in, in Glenelg on the chocolate side of Sacramento, those elements are still there. I just try to have much more love and justice uh, than I did hatred and revenge when I was very, very young. I think that's a sign of a quest towards spiritual maturity. You cast it in the form of love and justice rather than hatred and revenge. And that's a lesson that we learned from Martin Luther King Jr., Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, Edward Zaid. We learned it from John Coltrane, Love Supreme, and Chekhov. Why can't caring for the vulnerable, and as you say, of course, we are all vulnerable eventually. In the end, that's right. Why can't that be a bipartisan issue? It should be. It should be a humanistic issue. Absolutely. I mean, the challenge is that uh, there's a Dostoevsky formulation that says that we human beings are really not capable of bearing witness based on a love and justice, that we're too frail, we're too finite and fallen, we're too decrepit, there's too much envy and resentment in us as part of what the Brothers Karamazov is all about, the great novel Dostoevsky wrote before he died, that the standards are too high. We, we all need grand inquisitors. We'd rather follow Pied Pipers. We'd rather be manipulated and led and dominated rather than free and deliberate in our conception of ourselves, independent of authorities that would uh, ask us to defer to them. So that Dostoevsky says what we're looking for, what we're calling for is beyond the reach and capacity of human beings. That's a deep philosophical question. It raises the issue, you know, whether we as a species have what it takes to avoid self-destruction, given the ecological catastrophe coming our way. I asked Brother Chomsky that question the other day on my podcast. Uh, the tightrope with Sister Tricia. You know, Chomsky, he's a uh, probably the greatest public intellectual of our time, but he didn't really want to hit it head on. You know, he kind of wanted to, well, we just got to fight. Well, we just got, I understand. <laughs> I understand. Indeed, indeed. But he's got a certain rationalist tilt. In regards to Professor Chomsky, he's come on this show, and I've asked him this before. Do you ever worry that these questions? too often become theoretical quandaries that don't deal in human day-to-day -day life, in reality. That we expand it so much to the theoretical, to the literary, that it no longer accounts for the complexity of the human condition. Oh, absolutely. There's no doubt about it. I think one reason why Brother Noam is reluctant to want to engage in abstract theoretical formulations, he knows they become forms of distraction that can diminish our spirit and downplay our capacity to engage in serious thinking, acting, and feeling to change the world in a fundamental way. I think he's right about that. Mm -hmm. Very much so. Uh, I mean, in some ways, it's similar to Voltaire's response to the earthquake in Lisbon. Wanted to theologize and philosophize, and was this the will of God? And why did the earthquake crush the churches and leave the brothels untouched and so forth? 
And Voltaire was saying, well, no, the real response is bury the dead, take care of the living, make sure the medicine is distributed in such a way that people can go on. So that that there was a certain kind of sense of the need for intervention Mm. without having escape hatches like theologizing and philosophizing. That becomes an excuse not to engage, becomes a form of cowardliness. Mm. Uh, and I think that Noam is right about that. I think Voltaire is right about that. But in the end, there's always going to be certain questions that the curious are going to raise. Mm-hmm. But he just wonders, God, we human beings do tend to be so tied to self-destruction. Are we really going to allow people to blow up the planet before we can engage in forms of solidarity to preserve the planet? He knows that's a possibility. Do you believe that's what's going to happen? I don't know. I think it's open-ended. I think history is always incomplete and unfinished and open-ended. But I think there's a, there is a good chance, yeah, that gangsterization from the beginning of human beings emerging out of Africa has been a common strand and streak in our species. At 14, you picked up a copy of Kierkegaard's Fear and Trembling. It was potentially the piece that made you want to do what you do. Here's what you've said about it after reading it at 14. You thought, in the end, we're beings headed toward death. I was convinced for the most part that we don't have any control. So you really have to make a leap. You have to acknowledge the magnitude of the mystery. We have 210,000 people now dead because of COVID-19. The question of mortality is ever-present. It always has been, but now it's right here on the surface for us. Has this been on your mind in the past six months? I think I, don't, I didn't need a, uh, a pandemic to be reminded of, of, of mortality. I think it's one of the fundamental questions of wrestling with what it means to be human. We know kind of featherless, two-legged, linguistically conscious creatures born between urine and feces we are, and that there's no escape from our bodies being the culinary delight of terrestrial worms one day. And so the question becomes, well, there is the issue of collective death tied to ecological catastrophe. There's the issue of social death, which is always already operating, given the predatory capitalist civilization that renders so many precious human beings into non-persons or just objects to be manipulated or figures to be subjugated and exploited for greed, profit. So that all of these forms of death go hand in hand with wrestling with what it means to be human. And of course, they're inseparable from the forms of dogma that often constitute lives that hide the crimes and the forms of domination that are structural and institutional, and especially those of empire. That's probably the most invisible and overlooked form of structural domination is empire, even though in the end it's probably the most important one. So all of these I think we have to be cognizant of, we have to be conversant with in our trek from womb to tomb. And the question becomes, what will be the sources and resources of our joy, our strength, our determination, our integrity, our honesty, our decency, our generosity? And it could be religious traditions, it could be secular traditions, but there's got to be certain traditions in the history and the past of our species that they have ushered out and pushed out and unleashed 
that can help us make our trek from womb to tomb. And if we reach the point where we run out of resources and run out of resources that can allow us to be human and it becomes solely a matter of might makes right, of, of indifference to suffering is rewarded, of greed is good, then you end up with just, you know, survival of the slickest and everybody obsessed with the 11th commandment, thou shalt not get caught. Mm. And that just strikes me as just modes of, uh, I would say subhuman, but I don't want to put it on the animals. Hmm. You know, a lion and a hippopotamus and a crocodile and an alligator, very dangerous, but they don't engage in gratuitous mm-hmm. cruelty. They don't have this high level of pleasure out of inflicting pain on people. That's a human thing. So I, w- I wouldn't even say subhuman as if the animals are worse off than us. There's ways that we humans have come up with being in the world that's much worse than the animals. And that just means we need more cultivation. We need more ways of acculturating ourselves that accent the best of who we are as humans and not the worst, because the worst of humans is much worse than the worst of animals. But most of that violence between people or between nations, is born out of fear. Do you feel we've grown more fearful as a country in recent years? Oh, yeah. I think so. Definitely. We've always had fear. We've always had ugly domination, hatred, resentment, and envy. But I think with fascism, you see, fascism is a particular way of galvanizing fears and weaponizing fears. But America's at its worst has never been one in which a full-fledged fascist project becomes concrete and real in the way it has been under the Trump administration. I have a personal question for you because so much of our dialogue and, and, and past dialogues you've had are steeped in, in politics. But I wondered, after three, four, five decades of writing, almost as an act of public service, about what you've had to sacrifice at the expense of all that work. And in your memoir, Brother West, Living and Loving Out Loud, you write a passage that I want to go to. You said, because I've never been an advocate of psychotherapy as a path to self-understanding, I'm not sure I know myself well enough to share my whole self with others. This, in part, might explain my volatile relationships with women. One might argue that because I don't know myself, the more time I spend with a woman, the more various parts of myself emerge, parts that are, in fact, foreign to me. In short, my whole self surfaces, and it is precisely my whole self that strikes me as a stranger. To maintain a long-term and long-lasting bond with a woman may require the kind of soul-sharing or self-sharing that's beyond my capability. Do you really believe at this point in your life that kind of soul sharing is beyond your capability? No, I think it's just a question raised. You know, it's like the species. It just raised these counter, counterfactual hypothetical questions in order to sharpen what's going on in the present. 
but I, I, I'm a prisoner of hope, you know. I don't believe in succumbing to any kind of pessimism and cynicism, but I do believe in very real and raw criticism and realism. So, no, I, I, I don't think I'm incapable. I, I think the evidence is such that I'd have to continually undergo change, transformation, strong effort in order to achieve that kind of in the name that I'm talking about, long-term relationship or whatever it is, you see. Mm-hmm. So those words, I think, were really just, you know, Socratic moments of self-examination, trying to be transparent with one's soul in light of one's failures. But simply because you're honest with one's failures doesn't mean that there's no possibility of making some kind of breakthrough. Mm-hmm. Chekhov says what? The fundamental aim of life in the end is breaking out of the rut, breaking out of the routine, breaking out of the cycle which you seemingly find yourself. So you never give up on the effort, but I mean, it's, it's Sam Rebecca, try again, fail again, fail better. Try again, fail again, fail better. I'm always looking forward to that better even if it's still a failure. <laughs> because let's be honest, a lot of people who are in long-term relationships who are failing, actually, they're just still in them. That's all. Mm-hmm. And it's better to fail and be in them than to fail and be outside of them. So it's not as if they're great success. It's just that they're able to sustain it. And I give a lot of credit to sustain the longevity of the relation without the relation itself being thoroughly fulfilling the way that they would like. I tend not to, uh, to settle for that, though. I think I, uh, I tend to be one who, uh, who refuses to simply settle, but actually is continually trying to achieve something different and something that is, is, is more, in the end, fulfilling. Basically, what I'm hearing is once you sense failure, you have a tendency to move on. Well, no, it's not failure. It's that once I sense something that is dampening my spirit or undercutting my capacity to be true to who I am and be true to my calling, mm-hmm. I don't think that's failure. It's, I mean, see, a certain kind of l- lack of compatibility. I don't think failure is the right word, really. It's, it's just the... Uh, the inability to find that kind of a very difficult and delicate companionship that allows one to soar like an eagle as well as be as humble as a dove. In 2012, you said, last month I did 17 lectures. That's too much for a brother almost 60 years old. At the same time, if I'm able to touch a whole lot of lives, and get them to rethink, organize, mobilize. Is that better than sitting in the library and writing a magnum opus 12 years from now? Yeah, that's, that's, that's one of those Socratic moments again, no, brother. You're absolutely right. But, I mean, we had a wonderful discussion on Dante on Sunday at Trinity College. So each night I still try to read about three or four hours to be able to stay up on what's going on in the world of ideas and the life of the mind. But I would rather just be of service in a variety of different ways. Mm-hmm. I could do a dance music record with my dear brother Brandon Lucas that we just dropped, or with Brother Keith Benson, work with Teddy Pendergrass that we just dropped, a music 
have a, a record having to do with voting. All of those are different forms of communication, and writing books is simply one form of communication. Now we got Zoom, so my God, I've got all kind of community groups, my mosque, temples, and synagogues, and churches, and community centers, and colleges, and what have you that facilitate communication. In the end, you know, it's, it's being a jazz man, you know, jazz man is uh, a jazz woman. You're trying to be flexible, fluid, improvisational, keeping the swing grounded in the blues and communicating every way you can in order to uplift, enable, and unsettle others as you empty your soul and touch other souls before the worms get your body. That's a jazz man. Earlier, you know, you've mentioned Coltrane a couple times on this podcast, and I think someone like Coltrane or James Brown or Prince, That's right. they all practice what you call kenosis, which is more of a theological term than an artistic one, but it's essentially the act of emptying oneself on stage, in song, through words and expression, something you have been doing for many years, laying everything on the line. Prince danced and performed so vigorously he needed painkillers towards the end of his life. Coltrane played to the very end. So for you, Dr. West, do you feel compelled at age 67 to keep working, searching, almost as an act of service? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But keep in mind, though, brother, you see that it's a joy I mean, the reason, the reason why, you know, Aretha Franklin or Hutchison's Sisters of the Emotion, we just lost Sister Pam, but Sheila and Wanda still strong. The reason why they give it all, they give everything. The reason why Gladys Knight gives everything is it, there's a joy in that giving. See, it's not, it's not a burden in that sense. And so why would I give up that kind of joy? A love-driven, love-centered kenosis is a joy. And it's different than pleasure. See, it's not, it's not uh, just titillation, stimulation. It's a certain kind of caring and nurturing that allows an uplifting of others inseparable from a joy in one's own soul. And one wants to be faithful unto death of that kind of calling, that kind of love, that kind of joy, that kind of service, that kind of solidarity with the wretched of the earth. And uh, in my own conception of the world, you know, life itself is a gift. It really is. Mm. And uh, your death ought to be a gift, too. But it ought to be a gift that is grounded in 
a joy. And I always end my class with a caravan of love by the Isley Brothers, a genius who's from Cincinnati, who then moved to Teaneck. This caravan of love that we talks about, that, that the Isley Brothers are talking about, is rooted in this kenosis, this joy, this service. Never in the modern world have there been a people so chronically and systemically hated for 400 years. And that's what the, that's what the Isley Brothers are talking about. And I just want to be a part, a small part of that tradition of love warriors. Mm. Malcolm was part of it. Martin was a part of it. Fannie Lou Hamer was a part of it. Billy Holiday was a part of it. And it doesn't mean that we're pure. It doesn't mean that we're better than anybody else. It just means that we had the vision and imagination to dish out unbelievable forms of love while being so thoroughly hated for so long. And I would say the same thing about being terrorized 400 years and teaching the world so much about freedom. And the radical love and freedom, the radical freedom in love is a gift. It's a blessing to be part of that tradition. And every human being can choose. You know, Bob Dylan, Jewish brother from Minnesota. Bruce Springsteen decides to do that. Barbara Streisand decides to do that. The Righteous Brothers decide to do that. Hammer Stewart with the average white band decide to do that. Eminem decides to do that, hanging out with Dre and allowing his genius, white brother genius from Detroit, tied to Dr. Dre and all of the great genius of Dre and Snoop and the others. So it's not a matter of skin pigmentation. These are choices human beings make to be in on the love, in on the joy. That's what Sonny Rollins was talking about the other day, though, brother, when you heard him on the podcast on the tightrope. See, Sonny, 90 years old. Yeah, brother got so much vision, joy, love in him that three lifetimes of evil cannot crush because he looks Castro in the face and he doesn't allow it to have the last word. It's it's funny you mentioned joy because in the New Yorker three months ago, George Saunders wrote a short story called Love Letter. And I wanted to present a passage to you. I don't know if you've read it, but I'll present it to you. No, no, I haven't read it. Thanks so much for sharing this with me, my brother. He wrote, When you reach a certain age, you see that time is all we have. By which I mean moments like those overhead geese this morning and watching your mother be born and sitting at the dining room table here waiting for the phone to ring and announce that a certain baby, you, had been born. Or that day when all of us hiked out to Point Lobos, those baby deer, the extremely loud seal, your sister's scarf drifting down, down to that black, briny boulder, the replacement you so generously bought her in Monterey, how pleased you made her with your kindness. Those things were real. That is what, that is all one gets. This other stuff is real only to the extent that it interferes with those moments. So for you, Dr. West, on the subject of joy, what are those small human moments in your day-to-day life? I don't think it's just a matter of when you reach certain age. It's just when you reach a certain state of maturity. That's a very important distinction, you see. I mean, Keith is dead at 25. He'd been wrestling with it for many years. Shelley's dead at 29. He'd been wrestling with it for many years. It's a certain uh, mature way of seeing 
the world and looking at the world and all of its ugliness and still mustering the courage to try to tell the truth and try to pursue beauty and embody a, a love as, uh, as Beethoven's uh, formulation of it. And I think older people can miss out on it. Younger people can grasp it much earlier because maturity is not tied to chronology at all. It's tied to struggle and wrestling with suffering and transfiguring suffering into forms of creativity and hoping that you have an impact on others as one struggles, as one stays in high-quality motion and movement. So for me, it begins with the quotidian. You know, I'm very Emersonian about this. Everyday, everyday life on the corner, walking the streets, interacting with people with a grin, with a conversation. Those to me are... Uh, Kairos moments, they're moments that have a deep, deep meaning within the chronos, within the everyday routine. For me, it's a lot of music. Music plays a lot. This morning when I got up, I listened to Dorothy Love Coates holding on to my face. I listened to James Cleveland and Aretha Franklin's Precious Memories. I listened to Walter Hawkins. What is this? This fire inside of me that won't allow me to hold my peace. Those are moments every epiphany that help preserve sanity and dignity and tenacity, but most importantly, humility. We recognize that we're in circumstances not of our own choosing. We have to wrestle with them, try to transform them, but we'll never in, never in full control of them. And then, of course, there's a call, you know, to my loved ones, from mom family and beloved ones and so forth that make a big difference. Conversations with my brother Clifton that make all the difference in the world. And then that struggle, though, brother, when we hit the streets, man, those are Cairo's moments. For me, I'm a revolutionary Christian, so it is very much tied to being a follower of a Palestinian Jew named Jesus who left a certain legacy of love that we ought to revel in paid whatever costs are required to hold on to that discipleship. You speak of humility, and yet I hate to do this to you, but I, I am going to ask you to play the role of the oracle, as people have called you in the past. I don't know if you like that term, but people have said that of you. Well, I mean, you know, I, I know Brother Obama introduced me as an oracle at the Apollo when I introduced him when I was doing those 65 events for him in 2008. And I, I thought that was going a little bit too far. I'm not really <laughs> an oracle, but I, uh, I certainly try to uh, say what's on my heart, mind, and soul. And if, in fact, it has a dose of truth and wisdom in it, then uh, I say, wonderful, let's use it. As a man, as a person in the world, mm -hmm. which is the most accurate, right? Mm -hmm. What do you see when you imagine our country in 2021? Well, that's a good question. I, th I think we're unfinished. It depends on what we do in the next few weeks. You know, I'm trying to push Brother Biden and Sister Harris across the finish line so we can stop this march toward a vicious American fascism. Uh, we'll see whether the election is one that has any results at all or whether there'll be a uh, kind of coup against democratic procedures and processes. 
if in fact Biden and Harris do take office, I will be glad that Brother Trump is gone. Neo-fascist gangsters got to go. But there will still be the rule of big money. Pentagon will still be in the driver's seat. AFRICOM will still be expanding the African continent. The drones are still being dropped in different places all around the world, killing innocent folk. Wall Street's still in the driver's seat. Wealth inequality will still be escalating, even under Biden and Harris. Mass incarceration system, decrepit schools, inadequate health care and indecent housing and not enough jobs with a living wage will still be operating. So we'll have to remain very vigilant and resilient against the neoliberal rule of Biden and Harris. But who knows, brother? America may take a wholesale fascist turn. That's a real possibility. It depends on what we do, how strong we fight, what kind of resistance and opposition we put up uh, over against that possibility full of hope, but I have no optimism whatsoever. We just hope is a verb as much as virtue. It depends on what we do, what kinds of forms of solidarity we keep in motion, kinds of powers and pressure we keep in motion. But also, very importantly, given the massive failure of the intellectual class and the professional class in the American empire, depends on our integrity in terms of the truth we tell. That's what we continue to deny just how deep white supremacy cuts, and yet a white supremacy that is inseparable from the predatory capitalist processes and forces in the society. So we don't end up talking loosely about identity without connecting it to deeper forms of solidarity with working and poor people and deeper forms of integrity that have to do with calling into question these individuals who go up the class and imperial hierarchy and and celebrate their diversity and celebrate their success and has nothing to do with moral and spiritual greatness. He or she is great who loves most intensely and justice is what love looks like in public and therefore loves publicly in seeking justice and tenderness is what love feels like in private. So one is tender and kind and sweet and gentle to people to the best of one's ability. That's what greatness is. And uh, for me, all of those things are, are, are at stake in the next few months and in the next few years. As we leave, we've been talking a lot about greatness in this talk. And if you take a look at your computer, you'll find a poem on the screen. It's called Wild Broom by Leo Party a 19th-century Italian poet-philosopher I know you admire. It's also a piece that includes some of your mission statement. And if you wouldn't mind, I'm sure people would love to hear you read it. Oh, yes. The world we live in couldn't encompass all of this to creatures wiped away by a single shaken wave of the sea, snatched off by a sudden wicked gust of wind, so annihilated by an underground tremor there'd be little or nothing left to remember that man has a truly noble nature who, without flinching, still can face our common plight, tell the truth with an honest tongue, admit the evil lot we've been given and the abject, impotent condition we're in, who shows himself great and full of grace under pressure, not adding to his misery the hate and hostility of his fellow men. Yeah, this is the great Leopardi. 
the favorite of Schopenhauer, the favorite of all of those who can look unflinchingly at our grimness and still come up with ways of keeping that swing. It don't mean a thing if it ain't got that swing. Leah Party finds a swing in his language and his magnificent linguistic expressions. Duke Ellington can find it on the piano. Martin King can find it in his speeches and in his sacrifice for justice. We can find it in our relation, our love, our encounter with others. We track of all of their richness and complexity given the backdrop of catastrophe. Leoparte forever. That's why I wrote Leoparte in my re recent book, Black Prophetic Fire. He's got the epigraph. People say, how could Leoparte have the epigraph for Douglas and Du Bois and Ida B. Wells Barnett and Ella Baker? Understand the centrality of catastrophe in all of their works. And then understand how Leoparte dealt with the wounds of the unrequited loves that he could never, ever fulfill and yet continued to work, to write. You talked about that swing finding it across those disciplines, and I think you found it on this podcast today. Swing, wisdom, love is one of the best interviews I've had, my brother. I appreciate you. Dr. Cornell West, thank you for your time. Please stay safe. You stay safe, my brother. I salute you, man. our show. Special thanks this week to Maria Cole and Dr. Cornell West. To hear more of him, be sure to check out his new podcast called The Tightrope. It features talks with everyone from Noam Chomsky to Rock Kim to Dr. Anthony Fauci. To learn more about Dr. West, visit our show notes at www.talkeasypod.com. If you're new to what we do here, I'd recommend checking out past conversations with Professor Chomsky, Run the Jewels, Better O'Rourke, Representative Ilhan Omar, Claudia Rankin, Fran Lebowitz, Roxanne Gay, Dolores Huerta, Gloria Steinem, Ted Danson, and that's just from 2020. You can find all of those and more on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you do your listening. If you'd like to join our mailing list, drop me a line at talkeasypod at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at talkeasypod. It takes a village every damn week to make this podcast those people in no specific order include our executive producer, Janixa Bravo, illustrations by Krisha Shanoi, associate producer, Nikki Spina, our lead editor is Andre Lin, our assistant editors are David Harding, Rena Jung, Kevin Kaur, and Josh Siegel. Music by Dylan Peck, marketing by Patrice Lee, our interns are Juliana Rector, Grace Perkins, and Ian Simmons, graphics by Derek Gabrzak and Ethan Seneca, and the show is produced by Caroline Reebok. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. We'll be back for a bonus episode on Thursday with writer and critic Antoine Sargent. Until then, stay safe and so long.